Hey, thank you, Ross. And uh, at this point, if you would like to get your bulletin out inside, you'll find an insert. That insert on one side of it has the, the sermon notes that we're going to use today as we go through this message. Everyone uh, knows what a window is. They're part of everyday life. It's an opening in a wall that lets light in. It's an opening that allows you to see what's happening on the other side. A window allows you to see what you couldn't see otherwise. When someone tells you, I mean, this happens to us all the time, especially over the last couple of weeks, when somebody comes in and says it's raining outside, what do you do? You go to the window to verify it. If somebody says during winter that it's snowing outside, what do you do? You go to the window to see if it's true. Now, believe it or not, windows and churches have something in common. And the first time I was turned on to this, I was reading a commentary on Ephesians, getting ready for a series of of messages I was going to do. It was about 35 years ago, and a fellow by the name of Marcus Bart, who wrote a, a very, very famous commentary on Ephesians, writes this about the third chapter in uh, Ephesians. And he says, By its very existence, the church is called and equipped to be the theater of God's works that we display what it is that God is doing in the world. In other words, this way, the church is God's display, His picture window for the benefit of the world. So when we think about the church and we think about windows, consider this, that the church is the window by which God's intentions and actions become visible and verifiable in the world. That the church is the window by which God's intentions and actions become visible and verifiable to the world. The church is the proof of the gospel. In other words, the church allows the world to see the God alternative life. The world sees in the church what God is up to with the gospel. That the rumors of complete forgiveness are really true. That the hope for a life that is stronger than death is real. That a peace that defies description is experienceable. That an inexpressible joy exists. That life with God is better than advertised. That there is a love beyond imagination. And that becoming a different kind of a human being is possible. And it's visible and verifiable in the church. The window that is the church is how the world can see God reversing the effects of sin. The history of sin, as you know, is a history of the division, the separation, the fragmentation of of just everything that God created. Its impact is felt first in the separation between God and human beings. This is Genesis chapter 3. Even creation itself falls under the curse because of sin. That's the language in Genesis 3 of the thorns and the thistles human relationships begin to fall apart too. I mean, one of the things that happens in Genesis chapter 3 leading to Genesis chapter 4 is that not only are we separated from God, but we begin to separate from each other and we go from eating a forbidden fruit to killing a human being. So sin is the dark and evil force that pushes everything and everyone apart. But the gospel is the power that reverses sin and reconciles the fallen creation with its maker. Now, in the New Testament, there are several verses that have this theme to it. I just want to read several of them without stop, and you can hear the theme, catch the the dynamic language of these passages, primarily from Paul. 
It begins this way. God through Him is reconciling to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, the sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then at the end of the New Testament, the vision of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At the heart of those passages is this, that God is restoring oneness to His creation and the church is the evidence. That God is restoring oneness. He is reconciling and bringing together everything that has been separated by sin. He is restoring oneness to His creation and the church is the evidence. And yet, we are on planet Earth a far distance from this reality. The evidence is all around us. Humans divide over anything and everything. Hate does not suffer a labor shortage. The employment of hostility is everywhere. This country right now is not the United States of America. There's a a quote from George Yancey where he writes, Watching a country tear itself apart is quite the spectacle. Deep and dreadful and distressing divisions cut through all parts of human life as it pertains to gender. Men and women are at odds with one another. The discussions of power and gender relationships are, are messed up. Generations. Roger Daltrey of The Who sang back 50 years ago that he hoped to die before he got old. Today there are derisive comments made about boomers, the older generation. There are derisive comments that are made about millennials, the younger generation. We are divided in our generations. We are divided in our politics. Where do you start to even begin to explain these divides politically? Socioeconomically, we are divided. There are differences. This creates levels of discomfort between people on the amount of money that they have or might not have. And then over the last 18 months, we have had all of these COVID-19 animosities that have just blossomed in our midst. And one of the issues at the front of today's line of divisions is racism. It is a well-established and documented fact that this country has a racial history in which people of color have been abused. This history of abuse has evolved into a system of disadvantage for people of color. And this has yielded degrees of brokenness 
and hurt and pain and suffering to people of color which have not healed, and for some the hurt is more raw than it is for others. The world around us has fallen into an exhaustingly predictable pattern of racial incident, of protest, of backlash, and return to status quo. And on top of this, the sin of racism is not uniquely a white-black problem. It is a human being problem located wherever you find people who are going to judge the worth of another by the color of their skin or the darkness of their skin or the lightness of their skin, rather in in whose image they have been created to display in life. This is why the issue of race must be taken seriously. It is a violation of one of the earliest truths in the Bible. Seventeen verses into the Bible, into Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. And folks, there's a reason why humans are not getting to where they need to be on this subject. And these reasons, as disciples of Jesus, should not be surprising to us. First, humans are fallen. Racism is a byproduct of fallen humanity. And again, that should not surprise us. Humanity in its separation from God is confused about the worth of a human being. And this is not just an issue of race. Think about it in terms of abortion. And the the number of of abortions that happen in this country every year, it's over confusion, the worth of a human. How about sex trafficking? Confusion over uh, over the worth of another human being. War begetting war begetting war. Confusion over the worth of a human being. And self-centeredness and arrogance and hostility and, fu- and fear describe the history of human relationships. And Paul, in Romans chapter 3, gets straight to the point. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a second reason why we struggle with this issue in the world around us. Humans face a supernatural adversary. As, as wicked as humans can be on their own, they have help to become worse. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. And Satan, the Satan we do not see, nudges people in our world into evils they don't even see because they no longer see the devil. But Jesus did. And Jesus described the work of Satan in the world this way. In John 8, he says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then it's not only the fact that humans are fallen or that humans face a supernatural adversary in this world, but humans, all of us, we exist in a present darkness. Human fallenness coupled with an act of Satan in the world creates what Paul calls in Galatians chapter 1, the present evil age. And what he describes in Ephesians 6 as this dark world. Is it any wonder when we think about those three things that all progresses without God become stalled? Is it any wonder that sometimes it even becomes worse? To hearken back to a sermon over, that was preached over 50 years ago, 
Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us even to this day that returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. But here's the thing. In the middle of this darkness comes a light, a community of people that is called the church, the body of Christ. The lives of disciples become that window through which the world sees what God is doing in the world. We are participating with Jesus in His work that John, his best friend, said at the end of the New Testament and at the end of the first century, that Jesus appeared to destroy the devil's work. The church, as His body, follows in His steps. And the church today continues the work of Jesus to destroy the devil's work that is in the world. Now, to be clear, the answer to racism is not in the hands of activists or secular strategies. The gospel lived out in the lives of those who are born again and in whom God's divine power is at work, changing their lives is the answer. The world we live in needs the church to be the church. The world needs the people of God to stand out in this pessimistic moment of history with the optimism of the gospel to change minds and hearts and souls and lives. That is the hope. The world needs the kingdom of God to be that disruptive beauty of forgiveness and reconciliation and to visibly demonstrate the healing power of the gospel. I say this as humbly as I can. It is a beautiful thing to overcome racism. And it is a beautiful thing to say, I'm not racist. But it goes further than just those words in God's kingdom. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to be a part of God's healing of creation and creatures wherever the wounds are found. And there are so many ways that we can address this and talk about the power of the gospel in our lives, but let me just mention two things. The first one, in in being a part, participating with God in the healing of the world and the wounds of the world and of people wherever they're found, number one, we love all people like Jesus loves all people. We love all people like Jesus loves all people. Jesus' life drew people like a magnet. He went into their lives and drew them in their lives into His. There were fishermen and there were zealots who hated tax collectors, but the tax collectors were there. There were Pharisees and female divorcees and prostitutes and adulterers and the rich and the poor and the crowds and the multitudes, and he drew them all in wherever he went. He loved them like no other. It was the healings, the the teaching, the conversations at dinners, the conversations at wells, the feeding of multitudes, how he treated foreigners, how he touched untouchables that were indications of his heart, his heart for other human beings. To love people like Jesus demands a heart for people like Jesus. We love people more deeply and more profoundly with each passing day. Loving 
others like Jesus. The world should be able to look into the window that is the church and see proactive relationships of authentic love between people who do not look like each other, that draws them into the kingdom of God and gives the gospel of Jesus a hearing. So first, we love all people the way that Jesus loved all people. Then number two, we labor, we work for oneness. We as disciples of Jesus share an overarching identity. We are in Christ and we are one body. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, make every effort, that is work at it, to struggle, to labor, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One. To be one, truly one, means to rejoice when a brother or sister has a reason to rejoice. And it means to weep when they have a reason to weep. We must be intentional in our becoming one. God's work to reconcile us to Himself and to one another is intentional work. And our work is to make every effort to keep that unity of peace and to demonstrate oneness in a world that is dying not only just to see it, but to live it. It's not easy and it requires daily diligence, but let us never forget that to be in Christ is to be one with Christians. The gospel calls us to more than coexistence. The gospel calls us to more than toleration of each other. The gospel calls us to a love that integrates our lives and makes us truly one as only God can make us truly one. And quite frankly, this goes way beyond just the issues of race. It goes to all of the issues of this age that divides us. And this is why today our church is launching a new ministry dedicated to helping our church family to truly integrate and experience into one body. The name of the ministry is going to be One Body. It explains exactly what it is. The goal is stated this way. Oneness in Christ among all brothers and sisters, regardless of race, ethnicity, political party preferences, generation gaps, socioeconomic differences, or educational backgrounds. The ministry will encourage and help foster and develop a truly integrated expression of faith among a multidimensionally diverse group of people. Now, one of the blessings I I have received in this church, as each of you have experienced this as well, is profound friendship with people who do not look anything like me. I think it is one of our strengths as a church and a witness to the influence of the cross in our lives. But we are not perfect. And no one would argue that we are. Our work as the people of God to be the church is not finished, nor will it be until the day that we see Jesus as He is. But the church needs to be the church for the world as it is. 
And I think that it will be a beautiful day when people in San Antonio begin to hear of a group of people who have this, this uncommon community, this unique union with each other where every word is evidence of grace, where every action is drenched in generosity, where every relationship is proof of love, where every heart beats as one, where all are not only welcomed but embraced in the gospel. And when they hear about that church, they go to the window that is that church to see that it's true indeed. Before we sing uh, our next song, one of our shepherds is going to make an announcement.